0: live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGinney at Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. I'm working on a, um, on a new website for christigenney.org. The website that's there is, um, it, it runs on a content management system that is now four-year-old technology and is due to be obsolete by this summer, or as early as this summer, and maybe by fall. So I I had better start now to um, upgrade my software. Obsolete content management systems become susceptible, become very susceptible to hackers and and malware and things like that. I want to prevent that. I have to stay on top of things. I have to stay on the cutting edge. It was cutting edge when I developed it. I simply... um, because i was pretty new at it I, I simply made some mistakes and and rather than upgrading the system because of certain things i did i mean they weren't mistakes at the time but they were i could have made some better design choices with some of the components that i used which are now obsolete and are not moving forward so i'm building a new website based on core technology what, what and, and, and making sure that the data storage methods that I'm using now will not be obsolete in, in three, four, or five years so that the site can be more easily upgraded. The new site will, I mean, the advantages are that the new site will, I pray, be a lot better organized. It'll be a lot easier to find material. There's 3,500 pages at my main site. About 20%, 25% of them are podcasts. And and, um, they're they're the most popular pages for some reason, and and they they will be better organized. I I pray when I'm done, it's going to take several months. Material is going to be double posted to both sites. Anybody who wants to check out the new Christagenia and and watch its its, its, um, development as it comes along, the address is next.christagenia.org. Just type um, just like you would type mk.christogenia.org to get to the mind Comp site, next.christagenia.org in your address bar, not in the Google search. And and that should take you just http colon slash slash next should take you directly to the website. I'll be double posting documents. All of the content, all of my text content is actually already moved over. I was able to move it over programmatically, but I have to um, move it into the content types and and, and categories that I have, um, have built for the new site to organize the, the content, and I have to reattach the multimedia files and things like that. 3,500 pages, it's probably going to take me a couple of months it, it's um i, I want to make sure everything's right as right as I can have it the old site will probably be moved off to a to a different subdomain and and kept there for a year or so until I decide to 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 just unplug it and delete it i'll make sure that everything is on the new site before I do that tonight we will present the book of acts chapter 19. I don't really have any, um, any introductory material to recap the program last week. Last week, um, last week left us with Paul going from Corinth and, and then moving on and, and voyaging actually back to Caesarea and Syrian Antioch where we pointed out that he must have had his final meeting and his confrontation with Peter that he describes in Galatians chapter 2. That had to happen while Paul was in Antioch, which is only briefly mentioned, even though it says that he spent some time there. It's only briefly mentioned in Acts chapter 18, Leaving Antioch, he travels once again through Galatia, meaning the northern kingdom. And we know it's the northern kingdom when he says Galatia, when Luke writes Galatia in the book of Acts, because it's always mentioned with Phrygia. And it's distinguished from the other portions of Anatolia, which made up the Roman province of Galatia. So, because the Galatia that Paul visits throughout the book of Acts is always mentioned with Phrygia, we understand that it's the old Celtic kingdom Galatia that's being talked about. The Celtic kingdom was only. The the Celtic kingdom of Galatia, as distinguished from Lycaonia, which Luke mentions separately, and from Phrygia, the Celtic kingdom was actually. Only the northern portion of what was later become the Roman province of Galatia. So Luke distinguishing Galatia, Phrygia, and Lycaonia, all three of those old Greek regions were part of the Roman province of Galatia. Luke distinguishing them, we know that when Galatia appears in, in Luke's work, and most likely in Paul's epistle that he intends the Celtic kingdom, which was to a great degree also Hellenized at that time. The classical historians say that they um, they didn't use their own language for writing; they used Greek for writing. So it's only natural, and that's a, a that's a paraphrase of Diodorus Siculus or Strabo. I think it may be Strabo, and. and um, It's only natural for Paul, therefore, to have written to them in Greek. That's not a problem. Leaving Galatia and Phrygia, Paul travels into Ephesus and meets Priscilla and Aquila. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass with Apollos being in Corinth, Paul had passed through the highlands. I'm sorry, he, he left Priscilla and Aquila behind. Paul had passed through the highlands to come down into Ephesus. And finding certain students then said to them, So believing, have you received the Holy Spirit? The Codex Sinaiticus has Apelles here rather than Apollos just as it did in Acts 18, verse 24. I think I should make a note on that phrase, which is translated, the highlands in the Christoghenian New Testament. The phrase is actually three Greek words, ta anoterica mere, it means, well, well, anotericus means upper or inland, and a meros is a part or a share it, it's the upper or inland regions, so it's the highlands, right? The Codex Beze, the Codex Beze is part of, um, it, it's part of, well, well okay, I, I probably should rephrase that, it's probably the major codex, and and that, and it's, the the codices which are apparently related to it, are labeled as codexes of the Western tradition by Westcott and Hort. It's very clear. I I mean, I don't know if I agree with the label Western tradition, but they had to label the group of of codices and papyri with some sort of label to distinguish them, and that's the label they chose. The... um, The Codex Beze is part of a group of manuscripts which are quite peculiar in a lot of their readings. And the Codex Beze has many readings, not only in Acts, but throughout the New Testament that now we don't have. The Codex Beze doesn't contain the letters of Paul, but there's a related codex of almost equal antiquity called the Codex Claro-Montanus. And that is, from the readings it it seems to be certainly related and possibly a descendant of those portions of Paul which the Codex Bese evidently once contained, right? The Codex Bese has many readings, not only in Acts but throughout the New Testament, which diverge sharply from the other ancient manuscripts, even if the differences, and most of the differences aren't significant at all. It, it's just um, different phraseology or the substitution of synonyms because of the colloquial use of words, and and some words haven't fallen out of out of the daily language. It, it's most of the differences are meaningless. Some of the differences are important. However, the Codex Beze was evidently not alone. There's a papyrus labeled um, P-38 is what it's called, and it was found in Cairo, Egypt, where it was purchased, ostensibly from an antiquities dealer, where it was purchased by the University of Michigan in 1924. And because of its composition, it's esteemed... And, and, and its state, right? It, it's paleon, paleontologic, I, I can't say that word. Paleontologically dated to approximately 300 AD. It's estimated to date from about 300 AD. And it's preserved in in the, the this papyrus P38 is preserved only small portions of Acts chapters 18 and 19. Papyrus P38 has some readings in the portions, the small portions which it does contain, which are very similar to the Codex Beze. And it agrees with the Codex Beze here, and I'm going to read this verse so that we get a sense, that because I, I think this is important, what we have this Codex Beze with all these variant readings, and the Codex Beze dates to around um, the, the 5th century A.D., According to uh, all of the popular sources, right? Well, well, P38 is at least 200 years older, and and the the evidence for that is archaeological, of course. However, it appears to be the case. This is the way the Codex Bezae reads Acts. 19, verse 1, and Paul, wishing by his own will to go into Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit said unto him, Return to Asia, and passing through the highlands, he came into Ephesus. And finding certain students, and, and then we go into verse 2, right? So so we have this ancient, uh, these that these, what, what seem to be embellishments in the Codex Beze, right, they certainly seem to be embellishments, but we have this ancient papyrus, which um, can be pretty much esteemed to be older than the Codex Beze by, by a significant amount of time, and it supports the, the readings of the Codex Beze, but not always, because when we get into verse 2 here, P38, the papyrus diverges from the Codex Bezae and, and has a, a not, not an offensive reading, nothing wild, but it has a peculiar reading which the other manuscripts don't have. And, and it will be detailed in, in my notes to this program. To continue with verse 2 and, and the, the, the answer of these certain students to Paul's question, so believing, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said to him, rather, we have not heard if there is a Holy Spirit. And here, both Papyrus 38 and the Codex Beze have, rather, we have not heard that anyone receives the Holy Spirit. In either case, these men were clearly ignorant from the dialogue here. They were clearly ignorant of the events of the first Christian Pentecost, And evidently they were also ignorant of the ministry of Christ. Acts 19.3, and he said, In what have you been immersed or baptized? And they said, In the immersion of John. Then Paul said, John immersed with an immersion of repentance for the people, saying, In him coming after him, that they should believe that is in Joshua and, and several the majority text adds Christ to that, that the codex Beze substitutes Christ substitutes Joshua with Christ verse 5 and hearing they were immersed in the name of prince Joshua and both P38 and the codex Beze add Christ and the words, for a remission of sins, to the end of that verse. Verse 6, And with Paul's laying hands upon them came the Holy Spirit upon them, and they spoke in languages, or tongues, and prophesied. Here it is evident that the gifts of the Spirit dispensed upon the apostles at Pentecost, were still being dispensed. This is nearly 25 years after the crucifixion, as we will see shortly. Paul later wrote to the Corinthians that these gifts would one day come to pass, and he actually wrote that epistle to the Corinthians while he was in Ephesus, as we shall see shortly, where he is now. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 from verse 8 where he said, love never fails. But whether interpretations of prophecy, they shall be abolished, or languages, they shall be brought to an end, or knowledge, it shall be left unemployed. That seems to be the fact now. By destiny, we know And by destiny, we interpret prophecy. But when the fulfillment would come, that by destiny shall be abolished. When I was an infant, I spoke as an infant. I thought as an infant. I reasoned as an infant. When I had become a man, I laid aside the things of the infant, being matured. And and that's the end of Paul's quote, being matured in our faith, we no longer need these signs. We no longer need the gift of tongues, the gift of healing, the gift of prophecy. We put those things in the hands of Christ, and we live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Verse 7, and they were in total, or literally all, about 12 men. This is the last time, and that's the end that, that's the entire extent of verse seven. This is the last time that immersion or baptism appears in the historical narrative of the New Testament. After this, it is only referred to in retrospect. Paul mentions baptism one time later in Acts, and he's only referring back to Acts chapter nine and the event there. Paul mentions baptism many times in his letters and his epistles. He's always thinking back to a past event. This is the last time we see baptism in the historical narrative of Acts. Here, it is over 20 years after the Passion of Christ and the first Christian Pentecost, and the men who are familiar with the ministry of John the Baptist were not yet familiar with the way in Christ, which we also saw with Apollos when he met with Priscilla and Aquila in in Corinth in the previous chapter. Therefore, these men were immersed in the name of Yahshua. I'm sorry, he met with them in, in, in Ephesus, I think, in the previous chapter. These men were immersed in the name of Yahshua, and this is important that does not mean that they were baptized with water in the name of Christ as that name was invoked in some sort of incantation. That's not what being baptized in the name of Joshua means. Now, many professional priests may want to uphold that idea, but it's simply not true. Here, Paul is in Ephesus, and it is quite probable that these men helped to form a part of the assembly which Paul founded in that city a short time later, as we'll see in this chapter. Much later than this, when Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians, which he wrote from Rome while he was under arrest, several years after this at least, he told the Ephesians, From chapter 4, that there was one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. If there is but one baptism, and if Christ said that John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized. With the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, I'm quoting the King James, not many days hence, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1. If there is one baptism, then the baptism in Christ cannot be added to or layered atop the baptism of John. Unless Paul is a liar and is more than one baptism. (laughs) Paul is no liar where Christ is recorded as having said in Luke chapter 12 that I have a baptism to be baptized with. Well, Christ was baptized by John. Quite a few chapters in Luke before that. He was not talking about the already past baptism of John, but he was rather referring to his own forthcoming death. Therefore, Paul later said in Romans chapter 6 that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, to be baptized in Christ is to be immersed into the knowledge of his sacrifice on behalf of the children of Israel and their salvation by that sacrifice. That's why when Apollos mentioned knowing only the baptism, or admitted knowing only the baptism of John, Priscilla and Aquila didn't run him down to the water to do it all over again because John didn't do it good enough. Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the more perfect way in Christ. Once an Israelite, receives this knowledge in the gospel and repents. As Christ said in John chapter 15, Now ye are clean, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. This is why both Peter, 1 Peter 3.21 I think it is, and Paul in Ephesians again, I think it's at 5.26, both Peter and Paul attest in their epistles that baptism is truly a cleansing with the word of God, so that the conscience is clean. The baptism which was with water was a ritual act of cleansing, which is wrong. And eclipsed. There is only one baptism and it is not in water. When I was an infant, I spoke as an infant. I thought as an infant. I reasoned as an infant. When I become a man, I laid aside the things of the infant. If one is still baptizing in water, One is still in the position that these 12 men of Ephesus were in before they met Paul. Or one is still in the position that Apollos was in before he met Priscilla and Aquila, Who, hearing him, took him aside and more precisely exhibited the way of Yahweh to him, Acts 18.26. The book of Acts indeed records a religious transition from rituals to faith. And unfortunately, most Christians are still stuck on Acts chapter 2. And they are still infants. Verse 8. Then entering into the assembly hall, He spoke openly for three months, discussing and persuading concerning the kingdom of Yahweh. And some manuscripts, including the majority text, have the things concerning the kingdom of Yahweh. Wherever Paul taught, the gospel of the kingdom was preeminent. And it is mentioned often in Acts and throughout his epistles. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of the restoration of the children of Israel to the kingdom of God with Christ at its head. This is evident in Acts chapter 1, where the apostles had asked the risen Christ, Prince, then at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel? This was the purpose for the Messiah. This was the need for a Messiah outlined all throughout the prophets that the kingdom would be restored to the genetic children of Israel. And Christ said to them, it is not yours to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed in his own authority. Rather, you shall receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the end of the earth. Christ did not tell them that the kingdom would not be restored to Israel. Rather, he only told them that it was not yet time to do so. In the end, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, they describe the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. This assembly hall, which Paul's speaking in for three months, is, of course, in Ephesus. Ephesus, a city in a Roman province of Asia. So we see Paul did make it to Asia to found assemblies there, because Asia was full of white people too, Right. Ephesus was a city in the Roman province of Asia, which has a quite complex history. The location was the site of ancient cities dating into the earliest known occupations of the Lydians and predating the Hittite Empire, under which it was at one time subject. The Hittite Empire was a great, well, substantially Canaanite empire, which crumbled probably about two centuries before the Exodus, but pockets of Hittites remained throughout Anatolia in the land of Canaan in diverse places. Strabo says that Ephesus was inhabited by Carians and Leleges. That that word's a tongue twister too, L-E-L-E-G-E-S, Leleges. I'm sure it's a Greek compound word. The Carians and the Lolegas were people who elsewhere, by Strabo and by others, were often associated with the ancient Phoenician settlers of Asia Minor. In some writers, they were said to have been Phoenicians. And they were driven out of Ephesus by the Greeks, which was apparently true of all of the cities on the western coast of Anatolia in the 9th and 8th centuries B.C., and the Carians continued to occupy the countryside, or in some cases, even the cities, while they were under Greek rule. One famous example which I, I, I've often pointed to was the example of Thales of Miletus. Thales of Miletus, Miletus being a, a great Carrion Phoenician city not far from Ephesus. Thales of Miletus was one of the early and great Greek philosophers. He was one of the seven wise men of ancient Greece. Herodotus called Thales of Miletus a Phoenician by race, yet he was considered to be one of the seven wise men of the Greeks. Ephesus was apparently destroyed by the invading Cimmerians in the second half of the 7th century B.C., Reoccupied by the Greeks in his account of when the famous King Croesus consolidated a Lydian empire, Herodotus calls the people of Ephesus the first Greeks whom he attacked. Strabo says that after the Lydians took the city from the Greeks, the people, ostensibly referring to the Carians and the Lalegas who were driven out into the countryside, the people came down from the mountainside and abode around the present temple until the time of Alexander. Now when Alexander the Great came to Ephesus, he didn't drive out the inhabitants. He was rather kind to them and even offered to rebuild the destroyed temple of Artemis. And the Ephesians refused him and wanted to rebuild it themselves. Of course, that time of Alexander is about 336 B.C., perhaps, off the top of my head. Ephesus fell under Persian dominion. Prior to the invasion of Greece by Xerxes, it remained so until the Greek victory over Persia. Dominated by Ionians, until the Peloponnesian War, they were again driven out, and it once again fell to Persian rule, where it stayed until the time of Alexander. The famous Temple of Artemis was destroyed in the mid-4th century B.C. I think the date was 356. And it was destroyed by a lunatic, or a man said to be a lunatic, who apparently torched it. And it was still in the process of being rebuilt in the time of Alexander. Eventually, Ephesus came under the rule of the Italic kingdom, the kings of Pergamon whose last king died in 133 BC, leaving his dominion to Rome. So we see that the population of Ephesus and estimating who they were is a quite complex endeavor after it changed hands amongst the various tribes so many times. Evidently, many Romans were already living in Ephesus when it was invaded in the war between the Romans and Mithridates, the king of Pontus, early in the first century BC. And Mithridates had all of the Romans in Asia put to death. As many as, reportedly, as many as 80,000 Romans were put to death in the time of Mithridates. Mithridates, who himself was of both Persian and Macedonian ancestry, waged war against Rome from 88 to 63 B.C. However, he was defeated by Rome in Asia soon after he had taken Ephesus, or about 86 B.C., and Ephesus once again came under Roman rule. By the time of Augustus, Ephesus was a flourishing cosmopolitan city. Augustus had made the city the proconsular capital of Asia, and its population grew accordingly. Now, estimates of its population range from 33,000 to 225,000. I incline towards the higher number. I incline towards that for reasons of of what Strabo says about the city, which had, because because of... at least in part, because of a great harbor which it had on the river which flowed into the sea, the Caster River, it's called today. Strabo called Ephesus the largest emporium in Asia, this side of the Taurus, which makes Ephesus the largest trading center of most of Anatolia. So now we have a little background on Ephesus. It had a a Greek population. It evidently had some Phoenician, and they were Israelites, I'm convinced, some Phoenician and some Lydian stock, Macedonian Greek stock, and and Roman stock. It it was a cosmopolitan city. Verse 9 of Acts 19. And as some were hardened and unpersuaded, and and that word apatheo may be translated as disobedient, and if some were hardened and unpersuaded, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, withdrawing from them, he separated the students, speaking of Paul, each day conversing in the school of Tyrannus. Now, Here's another interpolation I'm just driven to speak about. The Codex Beze and the 5th century Codex Laudianus both have the multitude of people here. Speaking evil of the way before the multitude of people. Now, by itself, this English reading is not of significant difference. However... In both of those codices, that word that I would translate people is the genitive plural of the Greek word ethnos. And ethnos, which is primarily a nation, would usually be rendered as Gentiles in English translations. If the King James followed that interpolation, it would say, before the multitude of Gentiles. Noticing the interpolation serves to prove the veracity of an assertion which I've made throughout the book of Acts, that when a multitude consisting of individuals of diverse nations was referred to, the word ethnos was used in the plural to describe that multitude. And therefore, in such cases, it should be rendered as people in English, and not as nations or Gentiles, recognizing that ethnos in the plural, when used of a particular group of people, was used when the people in the group comprised of people of diverse national backgrounds, diverse nations, not necessarily diverse races. Diverse nations, Greeks, Judeans, they were all white, they were all Adamic, and most of them were Israelites. But a group of mixed Greeks and Judeans could not be called Aleos in Greek, because Aleos, whether it was used in the singular or the plural, referred to multitudes, tribes, or or portions of a single people. And when mixed nations were involved it would be called an ethne the plural of the word ethnos the interpolation simply makes that very clear in this context now while it is clearly a proper name in the context in which it appears here the word tyrannos which is a man's name here is a form of the same Greek word which we would usually translate as tyrant in English. I thought that was interesting. Paul separated the students, meaning that those who were persuaded to Christianity would stop attending the Judean assembly hall in order to be instructed at the School of Tyrannos by Paul alone. Now, the Greek word skale... We get the English word scholar from it and and the English word school. The Greek word schale, Strong's number 4981, meant leisure or freedom from labor in Greek. The Greeks spent much of their leisure time in learning, whether it was learning philosophy or any of the other arts or sciences. And wealthy Greeks were able to set up buildings for this purpose. Individual philosophers who enjoyed the support of patrons who were wealthy also had their own schools. Whoever Tyrannos was, he is only mentioned on this one occasion. Paul was able to use his school in order to teach Christianity for a very long time over two years. Verse 10 And this happened for two years, consequently, for all those dwelling in Asia to hear the word of the prince, both Judeans and Greeks. So Luke, Luke infers that people came from all over the Roman province of Asia, which is the, the, the westernmost part of Anatolia and probably the most populated part and people came from all over to hear Paul preach Christianity. Again, The Jew versus Gentile paradigm of the denominational sects crumbles. Many from both sides, Judeans and Greeks, accepting the gospel of Christ. Historically, both populations were for the most part Israelite in their origins, with elements of the other Genesis 10 Adamic tribes, such as the Ionians and Lydians among them. One other aspect of these Judean assembly halls, which must be noted, is that being so well attended by Greeks throughout the Oikumene, wherever Paul goes, he goes into the assembly halls and are attended by Greeks as well as Judeans. While indeed the Greeks pursued all forms of philosophy, it is nevertheless evident that the learning of the Judeans could not have been as alien to Western values than modern Judaism is perceived to be today. It couldn't have been as alien. From Revelation, chapter 2, the message to the assembly in Ephesus. For the messenger the angel, if you will, of the assembly in Ephesus Right. thus says he commanding the seven stars in his right hand, he walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, know your works and your toil and patience, I know your works and your toil and patience, and that you were not able to bear evils and have tried, those calling themselves ambassadors or apostles, yet they are not, and you have found them liars, and you have patience and have endured on account of my name and have not grown weary. But I hold against you that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do these works. But if not, I shall come to you and I shall remove your lampstand from its place if you should not repent. This other thing you have, that you hate the works of the people conquerors or the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, he having an ear must hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To he he who prevails, I shall give to him to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of Yahweh. The revelation of Yahshua Christ was penned by the Apostle John about 40 years after Paul's sojourn in Ephesus. The fact that Paul of Tarsus founded this Christian assembly cannot be honestly debated. Therefore, Christianity which Paul brought to Ephesus was true and was the first love of the Ephesian Christians of this assembly which by the time the revelation was written the Ephesians ostensibly were already departed from thus does Joshua Christ give his full approbation to the ministry of Paul of Tarsus during Paul's last visit to Ephesus, recorded in Acts chapter 20, he indeed warned them to be aware of some of the very things for which Yahshua later criticized them. Seeing that Paul founded this assembly, seeing what Christ says about it in the Revelation, he puts his blessing upon the ministry of Paul therefore the Paul bashers are just fools verse 11 and Yahweh brought about extraordinary feats of power through the hands of Paul so that even for handkerchiefs or sashes to be brought from his flesh to those who were sick and to be relieved from their diseases and the wicked spirits made to depart. Now we have seen much the same testimony in reference to Peter. In Acts chapter 5, where Luke wrote, and I quote from verse 14, and still more they added to those believing in the prince, a multitude of both men and of women, consequently even to bring out those with sicknesses into the streets and to set them upon cots and couches. And upon the coming of Peter, even the shadow would overshadow some of them. Then also came together a multitude from the cities around Jerusalem bearing the sick, and those being troubled by unclean spirits, all of whom they healed. The apostles likewise testified of Christ from Matthew chapter 14. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased. And besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. The gifts of prophecy, tongues, and healing were dispensed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles of the first century in order to facilitate the spread of Christianity in opposition to long-established paganism, 1,500 years of paganism, to the countless Greek and Eastern philosophies, and to Judaism, their efficacy, and the countless martyrs who bore witness on account of them, prove that Christ is true. Yet as Paul explained, and as we've already discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, those things would come to pass. And indeed, they did. Acts 19.13 Then certain of the vagabond Judean exorcists, I really wanted to write Jew there, also attempted to call the name of Prince Joshua upon those having wicked spirits, saying, I adjure you by Joshua, whom Paul proclaims. And the papyrus, the papyrus P38 and the majority text have, we adjure you. However, the majority of the manuscripts have I The word vagabond here, I'll probably be talking about this tomorrow night, too, in my Genesis presentation. We're discussing Genesis chapter 4. The word vagabond is from a substantive formative verb, peri-erkomahi, which, Strong's number 4022, which is literally to go about or around, to walk about, to walk around. It was used in classical literature, such as Xenophon, Herodotus, of beggars and other such people. Beggars, peddlers sometimes. It is of interest that Luke used such a word, as this is the first and the only time that such a description appears in the New Testament, to which we may compare Genesis chapter 4, verses 12 and 14. Where Cain was said to be a, to, where, where Cain was prophesied to become a vagabond in the earth, and, and even by his own admission according to the text of Genesis. While well, it is apparent that the Septuagint translators did not interpret these passages concerning Cain, when we read the Septuagint version of Genesis chapter 3, in the same manner as the English translators, the verb which can mean to go back and forth or to vacillate, they interpreted it as referring to vacillation and therefore trembling, right? To shake back and forth. The Hebrew, however, behind the English version of Genesis 4.16, sets the context to understand the word as vagabond, where Cain is sent to the land of Nod, which means wandering. And the Septuagint translators only attempted to transliterate that. They never translated it. So I think the Septuagint dropped the ball on Cain, right? Yet it can be demonstrated that many of the so-called Judeans were actually descendants of Cain, through Canaan, and consequently through Esau and Shelah. Judah's son Shelah had a Canaanite mother. Esau took Canaanite wives. The Canaanites had earlier mingled with the Canaanites and the Rephaim and the related races. And the words of Christ in both Luke chapter 11 and John chapter 8 demonstrate addressing certain Judeans, that he certainly was addressing descendants of Cain, blaming on their race, the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Only the descendants of Cain can be accused of the blood of Abel. There were two related words which appear in this verse that should also be discussed these words as they appear in the king james version are exorcist from the greek word exortistase and i translated it as exorcist here and the verb rendered as adjure from the greek word hortizō exorcistēs comes from a form a noun form of hortizō it has the prefix ex on it which by itself is a preposition and hortistēs comes from Horkizo, it's a noun form of the verb. Now, in this one place where it says to adjure in the Christogenian New Testament, I adjure you by Yahshua, that word adjure is horkizo and exorcist is exhorkistes. It's the noun form of horkizo with the preposition as a prefix on the front of it. Horkizo means to exhort or to adjure, A-D-J-U-R-E. Precisely what the vagabond Judeans wanted to adjure from the wicked spirits cannot be determined from the text. However, it cannot justly be assumed that they would merely expel the spirits from their human hosts. There's no indication of that. There is no indication in the original text of Scripture that this was their motive or that their motive was just. Note the account which was related in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, where certain men gained great profit by their ability to control a certain slave girl who was possessed by a spirit of divination. Here, it is evident that the Judean vagabonds—vagabonds, vagabonds, I'm sorry—wish to control the spirits possessing people by exhorting them, by adjuring them to work for them. That's just as plausible as imagining that they would simply expel the spirits. Now, this interpretation that I have is, in spite of interpolations offered by Papyrus, P-38, and the Codex Beze, which do have the Judeans attempting to expel the spirits. Since these interpolations are quite similar, I will only summarize them here, where the Codex Beze has, among them also, sons of a certain priest, and P-38 has high priest, Skeva desired to do the same. They had a custom, such as those, to adjure. And, and there's that verb again, right? And entering into him being possessed by demons, they began to call upon the name, saying, We command you by Joshua, whom Paul proclaims to come out. So those two manuscripts have interpolations which do interpret the adjuring of these spirits as as an exhortation for the spirits to leave those who are possessed by them. I believe that these two manuscripts are embellishing that they attempted to interpret rather than simply transmit the scripture. The reading of the Christian New Testament of Acts 19:14 is based upon a Greek text, which is generally consistent among all of the other manuscripts and codices, and the majority text. And it only says, "And there were seven sons of a certain Judean high priest, Sceva, who is who are doing this, and nothing about nothing specific about expelling." the spirits from the people that they possessed. I believe that the original exorcists or adjurers of spirits weren't expelling them. They were trying to control them for profit, which is the example which we have in Acts chapter 16. Now, Commanding a spirit to come out of somebody who's possessed is another way of exhorting that spirit, and and that could be called an exorcism. That's fine, because you're trying to persuade the spirit to leave somebody who's possessed. That's fine. But if you're trying to persuade the spirit to do something else, like we see in Acts chapter 16, that's also an exorcism. You're adjuring the spirit. The word exorcism, in other words has nothing to do specifically with casting out spirits from possessed people. It has everything to do with simply getting those spirits to do your will. And, and, and if your will is to cast them out, that's fine. You're still an exorcist, but that's not the... The, the, the Catholic idea of the word limits its definition to that, and it shouldn't be limited to that. Because those men in Acts chapter 16 profiting from, from the spirit of divination, they were exorcists as well, just exorcists of a different type. I think it's important to understand that. Here, I don't believe these Judean vagabonds were trying to help these possessed people by casting the spirits out. I think they were trying to exhort the spirits to do their will so that they could profit from them. And that's what's evil about them here. And there were seven sons of a certain Judean high priest, Skua in Greek, Sceva in the New Testament, in the King James Version, who were doing this. And these seven sons are those men who, referred to, who are referred to by Luke as vagabonds. And we see that they are related to a certain Judean high priest. Now, all of the extant manuscripts, except the Codex Bese attest this. The Codex Bese wants the word high. It has only priest. At this time, which is in the reign of Claudius, the Romans delegated the authority to appoint high priests in Jerusalem to Herod Agrippa II. And while there are many high priests appointed and removed from office by this Herod Agrippa II during this time, and Josephus Josephus mentions many of them, he does not mention any man by the name of Sceva. However, this alone does not discredit Luke's account, since it is evident that there were many former high priests living at any given time during this period, and that former high priests continued to be called by that title, and also that men of the period had multiple names. There may very well have been such a man who was known to Luke by this name, but to Josephus by some other name. So who it is, we'll never know. We'll Perhaps we'll never know. But Luke, in, in all the best manuscripts, does say he's a certain high priest. Verse 15. But the wicked spirit answered. It said to them, now I, know you, now, I know Joshua, and I am acquainted with Paul, but who are you? Now, throughout the Gospel accounts, the demons which Christ encountered both knew him and attested to his authority. That this demon here did not at all respect these so-called vagabond Jews may well be an indication of their nature as broken cisterns. Trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, according to the Apostle Jude. And therefore, having not the Spirit of God, they were not worthy of any recognition. The power of God would not assist them, and the demons had only God to fear. Verse 16. Then the man in whom was the wicked spirit springing upon them overpowering both prevailing against them and so naked and having been wounded to flee from that house and that greek is very difficult to translate and and i tried to do as tried to render it as literally and as correctly as possible and that's what i came up with while christians could indeed do wonderful things in the name of christ And in Luke chapter 10, it's attested that Christians had power over demons, the apostles of Christ. Demons would not respect those who could not be Christians. That's the example I see here. It is not that the vagabond Jews did not believe in Jesus. Indeed, they were calling upon the name. Rather, it is evident that since they were not of the lost sheep for whom Christ came, they could not be Christians. So calling upon the name would not help them. They must have believed in today's denominational paradigm. All you have to do is say, Call upon the name of Jesus and you're saved. That didn't help these seven vagabond Jews. They can't call upon the the name of Jesus and be saved because they have not the Spirit of God. Today's denominational sects follow the example of the vagabond Jews by teaching those who are outside of the promises and covenants of God to invoke the name of Christ. And it's not going to do them a damn bit of good. verse 17. And this became known to all those dwelling in Ephesus, both Judeans and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of Prince Joshua was magnified. And many of those who believed came confessing and reporting their practices. Now that Greek word praxis among other things, is a doing, a transaction, a business, an action, a practice. In plural, it means public or political life, according to Liddell and Scott. And the context being said in verse 19, the word is practices. It's, it's a series of ongoing deeds. It's doing the same thing over and over again. It's not just deeds, as many translations have the word to infer perhaps something you did a few times, practice. The word practice to me denotes continuity. Verse 19, and many of those practicing curiosities, gathering their books, burned them before all, and they told their value and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. The Argorion may refer to something made of silver or perhaps to a coin such as the drachma, which was the common silver coin in Greece at the time. At any rate, books were very expensive. They were very expensive at that time because they all had to be written out and, and, and the parchments had to be cut and sewn and bound, and everything had to be made by hand. Verse 20. Thus we, according to the power of the prince, the word grew and prevailed. And there were variant readings of that verse amongst all of the major codices, probably three or four different readings. Verse 21. And as he completed these things, Paul was set in the spirit, passing through Macedonia and Acahia to go to Jerusalem. Acahia would include Corinth, which was in his plans. It was in his plans to stop in Corinth again, as we'll see when we quote part of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians later in his presentation saying that after my being there, it is necessary for me also to see Rome. So we see the first time Paul plans to go to Rome. He doesn't write the Romans. He doesn't write his epistle to the Romans until the period covered by Acts chapter 20. Yahweh willing, we'll discuss that next week. And sending into Macedonia two of those ministering with him, Timotheus and Erastus, Timothy, of the, of, the, of the epistles to Timothy, and Erastus, he stayed for a time in Asia. Now Paul had already been in Ephesus for three months prior to his time in the school of Tyrannus, and then for an additional two years while at that school. Here we see that he is in Asia even beyond that time, where it would be safe to say that he was in Ephesus for at least two and a half years and possibly longer. We have seen that the edict of Claudius, expelling the Judeans from Rome, mentioned at the beginning of Acts chapter 18, can be dated to approximately 49 A.D., Paul stayed in Corinth for at least a year and a half, and his trial before Gallio, the Roman proconsul of Achaea, was most likely about the middle of 51 AD, and that is, as we can tell from archaeology, about the time that Gallio's term as proconsul began. Paul then spent... An extended but indeterminate amount of time traveling to and abiding at Caesarea and at Antioch in Syria, described in the second half of Acts chapter 18. And then he once again traveled through Phrygia and Galatia before coming to Ephesus. Now, after about two and a half years in Ephesus, It is probably safe to say that it is at least four years since he departed from Corinth, and probably longer. So it is now at least 55 AD. It's more likely 56 AD. And we shall establish at the end of this presentation where we discuss the writing of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, which indeed occurred here during his stay in Ephesus, By this time, Claudius is dead. He died in 54. And Nero is in power in Rome. Paul's final trip to Jerusalem, as we hope to establish, later in the presenting the later chapters of Acts in the weeks to come, Paul's final trip to Jerusalem was in 57 A.D., so there are perhaps two years left to his ministry. At, at least the, the the free part of his ministry. It lasts for several years while he's in under arrest in in um in Palestine and later in Rome. But there's about two years left to the free part of his ministry right now. Verse twenty three. And there came about that time no little trouble concerning the way. For a certain silversmith named Demetrius, making silver temples of Artemis, which provided the craftsmen not a little business, whom gathering also the workmen concerning such things said, Men you know that from this business there is wealth for us. And that Greek that, that word which I translated as wealth is the Greek word. Euporia and euporia is literally an easy way of doing something. Facility or faculty for doing something, an easy means of providing. So euporia really means that in this business, meaning the, the, the souvenir business, there's an easy life for us. And few... Now realize that the little statues and other mass-produced trinkets representing some object of veneration that people purchase at our modern tourist meccas are the same sort of idolatry, merely repackaged and marketed a little differently. And from that, certain merchants today also have an easy living. The souvenir business was just as lucrative back then as it is today. To these men, Christianity was a threat, as Christianity insists on the putting away of such idolatry in the works of the hands of men. It's a shame that Christianity is not a threat to these things any longer, but it should be. Verse 26, and you observe and you hear that not only of Ephesus, but of nearly all of Asia, this Paul persuading has changed, and and more fully rendered, that would say, changed the position of, a considerable crowd saying that they are not gods which are being produced by hands. In more recent times, rather than ceasing from the works of the hands of men, people only deny that the works are God's. Yet they still, still spend their time and money in the pursuit and care of such things. For that reason, the res- revelation of Christ says in chapter 9, and the rest of the men, and this is talking about the Byzantine Empire, and the rest of the men, those who had not been killed by these plagues, did not even repent from the works of their hands, that they do not worship demons and idols, things of gold and things of silver and things of copper and things of stone and things of wood, things which are able neither to see nor to hear nor to to walk. Now Christians have not ceased from idolatry. They have only changed the name of it to continue with Demetrius' address, Acts 19, And not only does he endanger this share for us to come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis is to be accounted for nothing and is also going to destroy her majesty, which the whole of Asia and the inhabited world worships. Then hearing and being filled with anger, they cried out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Demetrius' speech played heavily on the fact that the Temple of Artemis provided the city with great financial gain from the religious tourism that it provided, which was threatened by the spread of Christianity. In modern times, that same sort of idolatry has taken many other forms. Artemis, an ancient Greek deity, was the goddess of the hunt, among other things, and portrayed as the sister of Apollo. She appears in Greek literature from the time of Homer, and she was later equated with the Roman idol Diana, and, was, and, and therefore, in these passages, most translations, rather incorrectly, use the word Diana in their versions of Acts chapter 19. Artemis was worshipped by the Ionians as well as by the Dorians, by all Greeks, and from the diversity of accounts concerning her origins and her supposed parentage, she appears to be a native Greek deity, unlike those which were brought from the Near East or from Egypt. She was portrayed as having certain attributes which Athena was also depicted as having had, such as prowess in battle and her association with virginity. Yet Athena can clearly be shown to have been derived from the anath of the Phoenicians. Okay, TalkShoe dropped me from Skype. That's happened before. It hasn't happened in a long time. I'll pick up where I continued. If this happens again, I'm not going to call back to TalkShoe if it happens again tonight. The the, the Christagenia radio streams have more people listening than TalkShoe, and they are uninterrupted. I'm not saying that they're not able to fail, but they're – a lot more reliable that, than my talkshoe connection, that's for certain. Talkshoe wouldn't let me back in. I almost gave up, and, and then I thought I'd give it one more shot, and here I am. I hate to uh, leave the people listening on talkshoe, but in the event this fails, the Christagenia radio streams, I, I mean, I don't know if you can all listen to them, but you should be able to, and and they're they're they play all, all of my live programs can be heard right on the front page of Christagenia or on Winamp or any other computer based radio player like VLC or Windows media player that'll pick up a stream the temple of artemis in ephesus along with the famous Library of Celsus, which was built in the early decades of the 2nd century A.D., so it really didn't exist in the days of Paul, right? Those monuments were totally destroyed by the Goths when they invaded Roman Asia in 268 A.D. Acts chapter 19, verse 29 And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, seizing Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, fellow travelers of Paul's. And upon Paul's wishing to enter into the people, into the the theater, the students did not allow him. Now this theater in Ephesus was first built in the Hellenistic period, and it was expanded in Roman times. It had a capacity of up to 25,000 people, and it is said to have been the largest theater in Anatolia. Gaius and Aristarchus are mentioned again in Acts chapter 20, so they evidently make it through this event, right? The crowd in the theater must have been great, and seems to have been gathered hurriedly, and perhaps upon some sort of signal, such as a trumpet or some other device, the crowd seems to consist of the general democratic assembly of people which was accustomed to gathering in such a manner in order to hear some important, some matter important to the city. However, the statements of a certain clerk or scribe recorded here in verse 39 indicate that this particular gathering was not conducted in the usual lawful manner. It was hurriedly put together and... and, and it, it seems that a great crowd was assembled quickly, so there must have been some sort of trumpet call that called people to the theater in times of, of, of in, in times of distress or trouble. That, that's my opinion. <clears throat> Verse thirty-one, and some of the Asiaarchs or Asiarchs, being friends with him, meaning Paul, sending to him, exhorted him not to give himself up into the theater. Now Liddell and Scott say of the Asiarchs that they were the highest religious officials under the Romans in the province of Asia. (coughs) Evidently, the Asiarchs were wealthy men who were chosen to serve each by and on behalf of their various communities at their own expense. And they also officiated over both the religious ceremonies and the games, the sporting events, which were customarily held in each city. It is an extraordinary testament to Paul that he would be able to persuade such men to Christ, or at least even to have their sympathy. Verse 32. So then others cried out something different, so the crowd is is confused. For the assembly was confused, and the greater number knew not for what reason they had come together. Evidently, Demetrius' words were not very effective at persuading the larger crowd. Perhaps the charges which he made, so alien to their own religious paradigm, and and that seems to be um, evident in the discourse. In the subsequent verses, because the charges were so alien to their own religious paradigm, they themselves caused confusion among the people. The logic of the argument is evidenced in the words of the scribe, which are recorded in verse 35. Acts 19, verse 33. And from the crowd they brought up Alexandros, the Judeans putting him forth. And Alexandros, motioning with the hand, wished to speak in defense to the people. But recognizing that he is a Judean, one voice arose from all, crying out for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Here, perhaps, in my translation, the Greek word horus, which is the plural of hora or hour, was translated too literally because the word does not necessarily denote a fixed period of time, yet whatever Luke may have had in mind, the word minutes in this context would seem to be an understatement. I didn't want to guess at the time period which Luke referred to. So I wrote and translated the word literally, which is always the safest route when you're uncertain. Alexandros being put forth by the Judeans here. Alexandros speaking speaking in defense, which is primarily what the word, the Greek word apologeomahi means. He was not necessarily attempting to speak in defense of Christians. He's not one of Paul's number. It can only be wondered whether this Alexandros is the man referred to by Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, whom Paul called a blasphemer. Now, the first epistle to Timothy was apparently written from Greece, as we will discuss when we present Acts chapter 20, only a short time after this event in Ephesus. In any case, it seems that the Judeans here were not Judeans who were necessarily friendly to Christianity, and they seem to have wanted to use this this occasion, this event, as an occasion to accuse the Christians as they are recorded as having leveraged the pagans against Christians so many times throughout the book of Acts. Verse 35. And the scribe, putting the crowd to order, said, Men, Ephesians, now who is there of men who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is custodian of the great Artemis, and that which is fallen from Zeus. Now first, this man being a scribe, or probably a clerk, the word grammatius is scribe throughout the New Testament. The King James Version has town clerk here, and that's an inference, but it's not without merit because the crowd evidently recognized this particular scribe as someone whose words had authority, and they all listened to him, right? This reference to that which is fallen from Zeus. Strabo mentions the Zoanon, X-O-A-N-O-N, Zoanon, in connection with Ephesus in the fourth book of his geography. He also mentions it elsewhere. Horace Leonard Jones, the translator of the Loeb Classical Library edition of Strabo's Geography, says in a footnote that, strictly speaking, the Zoana, or the plural form of the word, were the primitive wooden images which were supposedly originally to have fallen from heaven. Here, the word is not zoanahs. The word is diopetes. And it appears in the New Testament only this one time. And diopetes literally means that which has fallen from Zeus. The reference is obviously to the zoanon of the classical Greek writers. In the Loeb Library edition of Euripides... David Kovacs often translates that word Zoanon simply as statue, And there's an example of that in the play Beginning* amongst the Taurians at line 1359, that's the one citation I will use here, and at line 1384, where the Zoanon at Taurus, there's one there also, is referred to by Euripides as the thing that fell from the sky, the statue of Zeus's daughter, and that was a reference to Artemis, who who is the idol to whom this temple in Ephesus is dedicated, right? Kovacs says in his introduction to the play, "Iphigenia Amongst the Taurians, That there was a cult of Artemis Taropolis in the Attic deme of Hali where where a kind of mock human sacrifice took place at the yearly festival in fifth century BC Athens. Verse thirty-six. Therefore, these things being undeniable, it is proper for you to be keeping order and not to do anything rash. These are the words of the scribe to the crowd. For you have brought these men who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. And because there had not been an actual crime against the people of the city itself, the scribe is explaining that there was no legitimate need to bring these men before the assembly of the people. Verse 38, So that if Demetrius and those craftsmen with him have a matter against anyone, the markets are open, and there are proconsuls, let them accuse each other. Now the, the phrase, the markets are open, or literally the markets are going in the sense of operating. The magistrates of the various cities sat in the markets and heard the cases which were brought to them each day. As we had seen when Paul was in Philippi, which is recorded in Acts chapter 16, the men who owned the slave girl from whom Paul cast out the demon had a legal cause. I'm not saying it was necessarily a lawful clause. Cause, but they had a legal cause to bring Paul before the magistrates of the city because, whether for good or bad, they had suffered a loss of income on account of Paul's actions, right? Well, that's what the scribe is telling Demetrius. If you think you have a cause against Paul and, and you've lost something or been damaged, you have to bring him and have him tried through the normal legal channels. Verse 39, but if you seek after anything further, it shall be resolved in a lawful assembly if they don't get their their justice before the magistrates, right? For even we risk being accused of sedition concerning this day, there not being any reason in regard to which we are able to give an account about this gathering. And saying these things, he discharged the assembly. Now, if the people of the city had acted rashly, without following procedures proper under Roman law, they themselves could have been accused before the Roman authorities and would be called to account for their actions. It seems here that this scribe must have been a person of some authority, and he was basically telling the instigators that they would not have the approval and support of the elders of the city for their actions, if they had done anything rashly, and he used the legal language of the day in order to tell them that. It may be conjectured that the scribe may well have been one of those Asiarchs who happened to be friendly to Paul, or at least one who was familiar with the friendship. With Paul not being present, where they warned him not to go into the theater, it was easier to defuse the situation since it did not appear that it was Paul whom the scribe was defending. While Paul was in Ephesus, he had written what we know now as his first epistle to the Corinthians. There is evidence Within that epistle, however, that it was really his second epistle to the Corinthians, and that the letter which was actually his first is now lost. That is demonstrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, where he refers to an earlier letter that he had written them, and, and which is certainly lost. From 1 Corinthians chapter 16, from verse 5, Paul says, Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia. For I do pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will abide and winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit, I'm quoting the King James, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. So... Paul wrote that letter from Ephesus, and he must have written it during this particular visit to Ephesus. Paul certainly did go through Macedonia again after departing from Ephesus At here, as we see in Acts chapter 20, where it says in verse 1, and after the cessation of the tumult in Ephesus, Paul sending after and encouraging the students, saluting them, departed to go into Macedonia. With this agitation against Christians from Demetrius and the others which happened in Ephesus, it is evident that by this time Paul had already written his epistle to Corinth, now known as 1 Corinthians. Whether Paul was actually Able to stay in Ephesus until the Pentecost, as he had planned, as he stated in his epistle when he wrote it, is not actually known because of this tumult he left town, right? The Pentecost, mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verse 16, must be at least a year after this Pentecost that he planned to stay in Ephesus until... The Pentecost in Acts chapter 20, verse 16, is with great probability the Pentecost of 57 AD. Therefore, the last Pentecost, which he had planned to spend in Ephesus, was probably 56 AD. And we shall better establish the dates while we present the later chapters of the book of Acts because of the, um, the times which are associated with Paul's stay in captivity in Judea under the times of um, the proconsulships of Festus and Felix, which can be dated fairly accurately. I will be here tomorrow night... With part six, I think it is, of pragmatic Genesis, we will be discussing, for the most part, again, because we discussed it last week, Genesis 4.1 and Genesis chapter 4 and the descendants of Cain and the New Testament evidence, there are eight witnesses to the fact that Cain was not Adam's son. We will be discussing those eight witnesses in opposition to the King James and, and the Masoretic text reading and the Septuagint reading of Genesis 4.1, which is the only witness attesting that Cain is Adam's son, apparently. And, and we discussed that last week, that, that that verse is demonstrably corrupt. So we will continue that discussion tomorrow. Yahweh willing, I will be here next week with Acts chapter 20. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.